lucky to have joining us today Dr. Stacy Garter from Wellesley College. Um, Stacy joins us from the heart of it all, Ohio, uh, and then she went to the University of Chicago, where a handsome stranger told her to take John Mearsheimer's class, and that changed her from going into law school and now being a lapsed lawyer and being disillusioned and bordering on alcoholism to being a fulfilled, happy professor. It saved me. Um, it saved me. <laughs> and, and doing some, some fascinating work. So Stacy's first book was, was brilliant. If you haven't read it, you should. It's on indivisible issues and deals with uh, Ireland and Jerusalem, which are things that are close to the heart of many people here. Um, she's currently doing a, finishing up a book project on legitimacy um, and how different rhetorical strategies have helped to uh, legitimize expansion in the international system. And she's uh, joined us today with her new project, um, The Cult of Precision, um, please, when you ask questions or speak, speak loudly. The room is being uh, bugged, and we would like to have very clearly who's, who's doing the, uh, the talking so we can blame you later. Um, so without uh, any further ado, let's give a warm round of applause to Stacey Goddard. Um, thank you for having me here. And, and, and one thing I, I want to say immediately, I can see uh, it looks like a lot of uh, students in the room I know I've known so many of the faculty here for so long. It, it it's 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 amazing, and you're surrounded by incredibly talented um, and intellectually uh, just just vibrant group. Um, so I'm really I'm really honored to be here today. Um, and and one thing I want to put right on the table immediately is 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 um, that this is amazing. Was the first draft of the project, um, which is both good. It means I'm in a place that I'm really interested in in getting comments. Um, it also means that, you know, as much as one engages with it, with, it, with the new project, one is also prone to go, yeah, yeah, you're right, that's a problem. Um, so, you know, that there, there's that. Um, so one thing I should say, though, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I would describe this as both a very old and a very new project. Um, it's, it's very old because the first time I thought about something, doing something on laws of war um, and, and, and norms uh, regarding technology was when I was a graduate student. So actually the first iteration of this project was probably 20 years ago. Um, and it was a combination of a class I was taking uh, taught by Warner Schilling called Weapons, Strategy, and War, and then a research design course I was taking from Jack Snyder. Um, and I thought I'd come up with a really good dissertation topic um, where I would look in variations about the extent to which militaries adhered to norms during uh, in the interwar period of World War II, looking at chemical weapons, submarine warfare, and strategic bombing. Um, and then somebody handed me the just-published book by Jeff Legros on the comparison of norms and strategic bombing, submarine warfare, and, and chemical weapons, and I realized I was not going to be writing that dissertation anytime soon. So damn you, Jeff Legros, um, who's a very nice guy, by the way, so please, not really. Um, but <laughs> so even failed ideas can have second lives, um, and, and, and this one has had actually a few lives. Um, but I, I decided to come back to this after uh, finishing up my second project, uh, which, which Joe was talking about, um, to see what I could get out of it. And in many ways, I, I came at it from a different perspective, thinking not so much about this on the strength of norms, but thinking about this really as, as the politics of legitimation um, among militaries. Now, if, if you've read the paper, or even if you haven't read the paper, um, what I'm presenting today really refers to a very specific historical moment. And that's the rise of what I've been calling the cult of precision in the interwar period and in World War II. 
And by the code of precision, I'm simply uh, talking about a coalition of actors that are arguing that war is, warfare is legitimate to the extent to which it relies on technology that hits its targets accurately. Or put another way, the emergence of arguments that suggest that uh, it's really whether or not one has the technology and doctrine in order to fulfill norms of discrimination in war fighting. That is to say, the ability to be able to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants um, in fighting. Well, this is an historical paper. I think it ties into a more general question of why is it that precision war, that is to say war that's fought with precision weapons and technology, has become associated and I would dare say equated with humane war? How is it that our debates about the ethics of war have become dominated by the argument that suggests that strategies in war fighting are legitimate, provided that the tools we use can discriminate between military targets and civilian? Now, I want to recognize immediately that I'm sure for some, this question might seem trivial at best. For some, precision-guided technology is the obvious solution to the problem of how states can fight wars within established and accepted norms. And this challenge has been particularly acute, some would argue, for Western democracies who, when forced to fight, want to do so with as little suffering as possible. In other words, for some, this is obvious. You want to protect civilians, you have technology and doctrine that protects civilians, so one uses the technology and doctrine that protects the civilians. Case closed. All that being said, there have been a lot of emergence of debates that suggest that this tie-in between precision technology and doctrine and ethical warfare is tenuous at best. Now, a lot of these focus on the fact that, you know, a lot of debates, I think, particularly have been concerned with, 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 with um, air, um, unmanned aerial vehicles and whether or not the type of, of, of doctrine of warfighting there is rather is ethical. And that obviously surrounds my paper, but that isn't exactly what I, I want to get into. I'm not so interested in talking about whether or not precision doctrine and technology does what it sets out to do. Because arguably, I, I, I think in many cases, it does. Um, my question is, is somewhat uh, different, and, and it really circles around what drives this focus on precision technology and doctrine on the one hand, and then second of all, what types of unintended consequences that focus on precision uh, doctrine and technology as a normative, type of, a normative type of warfare might actually have. And really during this presentation, I'm going to make two key arguments. The first one is that the story, the initial story of the adoption of, 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 of the strength of this norm of non-discrimination is not the conventional one. And the conventional one, I would suggest, <coughs> is a story that says norms of non-discrimination, I'm sorry, I should say norms of discrimination, my apologies, drive precision technology and doctrine. That is to say that once these norms strengthened, actors were interested in finding technology that would fulfill this norm of mission. Rather, what I'm going to argue today is that it was the militaries, and particularly the United States Air Force, interest in precision technology and doctrine that drove the dominance of norms of discrimination in thinking about and guiding military <coughs> strategy. Okay. Um, I'm going to argue that this actually happens because of what I call rhetorical battles or rhetorical politics, and particularly the type of rhetoric that was used in an intense battle between the American military services over who could fight a moral war. And in particular, the story I'm going to tell you is that years before World War II, the United States Army Air Force increasingly turned to the rhetoric of, discri uh, of discrimination in, in warfare, arguing that air power was not only the most effective, but the most humane and democratic way to fight a war in the modern age. Now, I'm going to argue that this rhetoric is primarily <coughs> strategic. 
It was done so the Air Force could gain autonomy from the other services, as well as increase its resources. But I'm also going to argue that this rhetorical commitment to norms of discrimination had profound effects on subsequent development of military doctrine, as well as the trajectory of ethical debates about the conduct of war. And in particular, I want to highlight three significant effects that I think are important not only for this particular historical time period I look at, but for the present day. First, I'm going to argue that this rhetoric had significant constraints on air services doctrine, often in what were irrational and costly ways. Second, I'm going to argue that this understanding of what constitutes ethical warfare had an effect on, on, on the nature of debates surrounding the ethics of war, what I'm going to call a narrowing of the debates surrounding the ethics of war. And finally, I'm going to argue that this rhetorical battle ultimately had unintended consequences, which at least right now I'm referring to as paradoxes of precision. And what I mean by this is in focusing on precision, in this narrowing of the debate, we actually see the introduction of practices that either undercut the norm of discrimination itself or create other normative quandaries for the, for the military services and for the American public. So I'm going to basically do the, you know, the, the kind of structure, of, you know, basic structure of the talk, and walk through uh, what are the conventional understanding, um, walk through what my theory is, and then hopefully get to the case. Um, I think I've got the timing down, um, and won't have to talk too fast. Uh, I tend to go through presentations um, without taking, uh, with preserving time for discussion at the end. But obviously, if there's anything that needs to be clarified, uh, go ahead and and try to stop me and let me know. So let me talk a little bit about the conventional wisdom. Um, which really comes from the constructivist literature on how it is uh, that precision technology and, and, and doctrine um, came to kind of embrace this idea of, of the norm, and we came to embrace this idea that the norm of discrimination in some ways was a priority in war fighting. Now, as I already mentioned, for many constructivists, the relationship between precision technology and ethical war fighting is pretty straightforward. The American military's commitment to precision has enabled and arguably has demanded a more humane doctrine, one that requires militaries respect civilian lives, even as they engage in effective warfighting. Now, one thing that I'm not arguing here is somehow the American Air Force the, uh, commitment to precision and technology creates a norm of discrimination. I mean, anybody who's read the literature knows that norms of discrimination of non-combatant immunity have been around as far as we've been talking about warfighting itself, right? So um, if I had PowerPoint and I decided not to do it, I would have lovely pictures of St. Augustine talking about what constitutes a just war. Um, I had a lovely picture of a crossbow, which the Catholic Church banned from warfighting in the 12th century, and then decided the 13th century is okay to use against the Turks, and then decided it's okay to use against everybody. Um, so this, these kinds of ideas of who gets to fight and how we get to fight have obviously been around for a very long time. For constructivists, the primary argument about discrimination and precision technology is that it was a strengthening of beliefs and norms about discrimination that led to the adoption of precision technology and doctrine. Okay. So as more and more people and communities began to believe that it was important that warfighting must respect non-combatant immunity, that it also became imperative on militaries to adopt technology and doctrine that would preserve non-combatant immunity. And so if you look, for example, of, of the work of Ward Thomas, he talks about how this norm strengthens over time and how we see shifts in military technology, doctrine, and strategy based on the strengthening of that war norm. 
So in World War II, uh, the norm's not so strong, and militaries, especially the Air Force, get away with, with, with a lot of uh, civilian damage. But as we move through the Vietnam War, Gulf War into the contemporary age, we see that military has been far more attentive to these norms as they actually plan their weapons procurement um, and, and, and their doctrine and strategies. Now, there's no doubt that, to my mind, that militaries have been interested in making sure that they're adopting strategies that are within the boundaries of what considered to be normative warfare. And more, where there can be no doubt that technology itself has become more precise and more capable of discriminating between civilian and military targets, right? Um, you know, one can simply look at the fact that, that, that when we think about CEPs, the center error probable, that is to say, uh, the radius in which one expects 50% of, of your weapons to fall, so the accuracy of the weapon, this has gone from being measured in miles to meters between, what, uh, between World War I and the present day. Right? So there's no doubt that technology has gotten better, more accurate, more capable of discriminating. And moreover, there's actually a really um, great article by Colin Call a few years ago in, in, in International Security that talked about how practices um, in the United States military have really developed to try to protect civilians during wartime, right? Which is not to say that it is always 100% effective. It can't be. But it is to say that the, the adherence of storm is something that is serious, right? Now, the stories that constructivists tend to tell are entirely determinative, right? So, for example, um, Stephanie Carvin and Michael Williams um, have a book where they talk about the interaction between American military culture on the one hand and the norms on the other, and the fact that the American military was particularly situated to respond to the strengthening of this norm, right? So it's not a completely um, simple story where norms determine behavior, right? But generally speaking, there does tend to be a bit of a progressive trajectory within constructivist writings on, on, on uh, norms and technology, right? So for example, um, Nick Wheeler, who writes on this, argues that, quote, the development of precision-guided weapons in the last decade has opened up new possibilities for reducing the risks of civilian casualties without sacrificing military effectiveness. We have this nice conjuncture of, of, of really precise and effective technology on the one hand and norms that everybody wants to meet on the other. And likewise, Ward Thomas argues that access to precision technology has not only responded to pressures to, to, to adhere to norms, but has also created pressures to be good, I'm quoting here, by removing a possible excuse to be bad. So again, we kind of have this idea of this, this, this real telos um, in a lot of constructivist theorizing. Now again, as I already mentioned in the introduction, there are a lot of critiques out there about the extent to which precision technology actually creates um, these outcomes and the extent to which it allows militaries to discriminate between civilian casualties and military ones. But what I want to focus on here really is the causal story, that it's really these norms of non-discrimination that drive new technologies and doctrines of precision. And instead I want to talk about how it is that doctrines and technology of precision pushed the military, particularly in this case the United States Air Force, towards a rhetoric of discrimination in justifying and legitimating their, their war fighting. And the effects that this rhetorical battle ended up having on strategy and practices in American war fighting. So let me take a few moments to talk about the theory that I developed in the paper. Now one thing I say in the paper is that the rules of, of, of precision and of discrimination, like any norm shaping the practice of war, is a social and political construction. It is contingent. It is arbitrary. 
And here I argue that the construction of precision is founded in rhetorical politics, and in particular, the effort of military elites, particularly in the United States Army Air Force, to portray their strategies as a legitimate form of war. And in building the theory, I try to answer three questions. And first of all, why is it that the military is positioned to create a narrative precision? Second, how and why would these narratives would be created? Why is it that the United States Air Force would turn to the rhetoric of discrimination and non-combatant immunity to justify their strategies? And finally, why was it that this particular number of precision came to dominate and not others? So one of the things I tried to do in this paper is not treat the military as a passive actor in these types of politics, um, but as an active one, or as what one might even think of as a norm entrepreneur in international politics. One thing that really struck me about the existing literature is the military is present, um, but scholars tend to talk about them as though they are simply constrained, as though they must have to respond to things like public opinion or uh, political elite pressure on their strategies. And instead, what, what I find is that the military is going to be quite active in thinking about and creatively defining what it means to practice legitimate warfare. And I think that is very much the case here. And that makes sense. I mean, after all, military you know, elites are positioned to talk about their strategies. They're in the position to be able to do so with a certain amount of authority, and arguably more authority than some of the uh, civilian elites um, that are making the same argument. So it makes sense to me that they would be active in defining these types of norms. That's not to say that militaries are not always engaged in these type of, of attempts to legitimate their strategies. Um, I have some work um, with, with uh, Ron Krebs, who's at University of Minnesota, where we talk a bit about when it is legitimation and, and rhetorical battles in general likely to happen. Um, and I argue in this paper that actors, military actors are likely to turn or try to legitimate their military strategies under really particular conditions. They're likely to do so when they're feeling the stress of inter-service rivalries. And they're likely to do so when they feel like, in the second condition, they're likely to do so um, when they feel like the light of, uh, of public opinion is upon them. That is to say, when they feel like they're trying, they have to battle for resources or autonomy, and when they feel like they're being watched by a public, they're more likely to turn to moral justifications to try to defend their strategies. Right? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is the only way in which militaries talk about their strategies. I mean, that would be a little ridiculous. They talk about it in terms of effectiveness, right? They talk about it in terms of cost, right? But I'm saying this might actually be a neglected way in which scholars approach how it is militaries speak of themselves as being relevant to strategy. Um, and this would be yeah, particularly in, 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 in democracies where they would expect that they have to think about not only the effectiveness and the cost, but also perhaps whether or not they can fight a battle within the rules of the game. And finally, um, you know, thinking about why it is that particular norms of precision come to dominate in their effects, a lot of this ultimately comes down to the particular historical context um, in, which the nor in which norms of discrimination met technology of precision. And so with that in mind, I want to go ahead and turn directly to the case study that I have, which is the interwar period um, and World War II, and looking at how it is the Air Force justified their turn to strategic bombing and their use of precision doctrine and technology in strategic bombing during World War II. Okay. So let me do just a little bit of a setup in this case before I turn to this. Okay. So to begin with, when you're thinking about the United States Air Force as a primary actor, this is, an, uh, this is a military uh, organization that in the years before World War II 
was kind of fighting for its life. Right? Um, it was in a position where it wasn't an independent arm, but had been largely incorporated within the army. Um, it had managed to gain some sort of autonomy and independence during the 1920s and 1930s, first becoming an independent arm, kind of like one would treat artillery, and eventually getting its own administrative, uh, administrative apparatus. But it really comes into this period um, looking to get a lot more autonomy um, than it had uh, in, in, in World War I. And my argument is that it's the United States Army Air Force, or I might just say Air Force or Air Corps, or just watch my sloppiness with jargon here, my apologies for that. Um, my argument here is that they turn increasingly to the rhetoric of discrimination in order to lay the case for their independence, as well as promote their particular approach to warfighting. Now I'm sure for some of you, my selection of a case of the interwar period in World War II is a little bit strange to talk about norms of non-combatant immunity and discrimination. I mean, after all, this is a case of a total war. This is a case where in Germany, an estimated 600,000 people, civilians die in strategic bombing campaigns that are conducted by the Royal Air Force and the United States Army Air Force. This is a war in which over 300,000 civilians in Japan die through the campaigns of the United States Army Air Force. In other words, this doesn't exactly seem like a case where precision bombing and norms of non-combatant community hold. But a lot of historians have pointed out that it's actually during this interwar period and during the period of World War II that the United States Army Air Force rhetorically links their doctrine of precision with norms of non-combatant community. That they begin to argue that to fight a precise war was not only to fight an effective war, but it was to fight a just one. And as one historian argues, it's the, the, the kind of contemporary military ethics of accuracy and precision that are espoused in current air operations evolved directly from the effort and intent of the military's experience in World War II. So I would actually argue this is not only an important case study, it's the critical case study. It is why I call this the rise of the cult of precision. I, I, I'm making a claim about the origins here. So it's during this point that the United States Army Air Force begins to justify their war fighting with appeals to norms of discrimination in non-combatant community. And I argue that they do so because they're facing this battle of their own autonomy, as well as resource scarcity between the forces. I already described the United States Army Air Force during this time, and it's also, I'm sure many of you know, a time that the United States uh, military across the board was going through significant budget cuts, um, as the United States was facing first a general sense that it didn't want to be fighting a war another war like World War I, so why have a, a, a robust military like want to build up? as well as, of course, after 1929, dealing with a, uh, a significant depression that made budget uh, restraints paramount. Yeah. But during this time, you begin to see the Air Force articulating a justification for an independent Air Force that was capable of fighting wars, first more effectively and also more morally than other services. Now, these two arguments went together. Went together. Um, they basically argued that the United States Air Force could fight war so effectively that they would be more moral because they would end wars so quickly. Right? And these were the dominant article, uh, arguments in particular by, by Billy Mitchell, who argues that if you could just send the Air Force in, you know, they could basically fly over any sort of trench warfare, this like you see in World War I, 
crush civilian morale, and end wars quickly so we wouldn't have to deal with the type of catastrophe that we saw in World War II. So a pretty typical quotation by Billy Mitchell uh, would say something like, achieving the, this is a quote, achieving the goal of breaking morale might cause some civilian deaths, but the number would pale compared to the deaths produced by a ground war between industrialized powers. Civilians were so weak that hitting them fast with bombers would break them and cause the end of the war. So for those of you who study, this is very much kind of a Duhay strategy. So this was the initial justification. Well, what happens during this period, and this is in the 1920s, is that the Navy counterattacks. The first Navy counterattack comes on the grounds of efficiency, but for various reasons I described, discussed in the paper, that argument begins to lose traction. Billy Mitchell is a is, is, is really good at getting publicity. He does things like stage um, these operations where, where, where battleships um, are, are, are hit by bombers out of the sky, completely destroyed. And as much as the Navy points out things like, but the battleships were chained, they weren't going anywhere. And, and you know, real battleships move. Um, basically, they, they, they found their own arguments for their own effectiveness to be going downhill. So we see in the 1920s, the Navy begins to counterattack rhetorically against the Air Force arguing that it might be that the Air Force is effective, still don't buy it, but it might be, but they are morally deranged. Um, and one of the places that, that I look for to see some of these arguments um, was in a place called the Morrow Board. It was a consideration of the uh, Air Force's uh, requests for autonomy. Um, and Admiral William Pye kind of comes out with all guns blazing. Um, against the Air Force, uh, making arguments such as, quote, it's time to stop pussyfooting around and find out what the Air Force advocates, both here and abroad, um, in war. What are their objectives? Why do the proponents of attack on the civil population and economic resources believe that international law and treaties will not be binding? And it goes on to call what the Air Force is advocating nothing short uh, of a symbol of moral decay of nations. This is not an American way of war, the Navy says. This isn't particularly good for the Air Force, um, and they begin to find that their own arguments are undermined. And I, one thing I, I don't probably talk about as much in the papers, this is all being done in a general kind of very palpable civilian fear of, of warfare from the sky and what that's going to mean, uh, not just globally, but, but, but in terms of at home. What, what happens when all these European nations are going to be able to, to hit the United States with bombers? So these are pretty resonant, um, these are pretty resonant strategies. What we see then in the late 1930s is the Air Force trying to turn to justify their strategies and their autonomy in another way. And that's the beginning to turn to norms of discrimination and non-combatant immunity to justify their war fighting. Okay. And the norm entrepreneurs here that I identify in the paper are people like uh, Harold Hap Arnold, uh, Hansel, Carl Spatz, Ira Eaker. Um, and these you know, generals were uniquely positioned to act as norm entrepreneurs. Um, on the one hand, they were all extremely visible. They were very articulate. Um, they were embedded um, in, a, in kind of what I call a discourse of air powers and world good. They were all really progressive thinkers, right? So they didn't come to this out of nowhere. They already uh, were embedded in these type of philosophical debates. Um, they were also really aware of the Air Force's growing interest in precision technology and doctrine, right? Um, so there's this whole cadre in the Air Force at this time, airport at this place called the Air Corps Tactical School. Okay? Um, and most of the officers uh, go through the Air Corps Tactical School. And at the Air Corps, Air Corps Tactical School, you're beginning to see the development of this precision doctrine. Now, precision doctrine and technology at this point has nothing 
to do with norms of discrimination in non-combatant community. If you look at the lectures that are coming out there, this is about effectiveness. Or if you've read Tammy Davis's work, um, she talks about the fact that this is really embedded in, in, in theories of war that have to do with tight industrial networks. And if you hit one of these nodes precisely, you're going to knock out the whole thing. Right? But what Arnold and Eaker and Spots see is the possibility of marrying this precision technology and doctrine to a set of, of justifications that say not only is this the most effective way to conduct war, it's the most legitimate way to conduct war. Right? It's a way that the United States in particular can fight war in, in, in a manner that is consistent with American values. Um, so just to, I, mean, I give a few examples of, of, of some of, of the messages in, 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 this, uh, in the paper. I'll just focus on one here for the sake of time. One of my, what I think is an exemplary quote here is Hap Arnold arguing that the bomber, when used with a proper degree of understanding, becomes in effect the most humane <coughs> of all weapons. So this really, the, this, this idea of, of, of precision weaponry as being effective and humane and the United States Army Air Force is being positioned as the most effective and humane arm uh, of the United States military becomes a dominant rhetorical strategy. And I do call it a strategy. I, for, for many of these actors, it, it's really instrumental. Um, for Arnold, um, I, I think in particular for Eaker, there's a whole thing, by the way, about Eaker, I don't talk about the paper. He's a, he's a graduate of USC School of Communication. I mean, these are, they're publishing books and pamphlets. I mean, they, they really know what they're doing. And again, a lot, and a lot of the strategics, people like Spots and Doolittle, if you know about them, they, they seem a little more sincere. If you, if you look at how they write this up, they, they really do think that they're capable of creating a more humane war. Okay. But to say something is, is instrumental or to say it's strategic doesn't mean that it doesn't have significant causal effects. Right? That is to say that one can use and introduce rhetoric and justification strategically and still have that what, what Jack Snyder would call blowback effects. Right? It still comes back and shapes um, the, the practices um, of the United States military. Right? And, and I argue that this actually has a significant constraint um, in three different ways, that it actually constrains United States military doctrine even during World War II, that it causes what I call a narrowing of ethical debates around the practices of war, um, and that it causes you know, these paradoxes of precision. That is to say, it creates mechanisms that actually undercut humane warfare. And I want to walk through each of these really briefly because I actually would like to stop talking and hear what you have to say. Um, in the paper, I talk about some of the ways in which these rhetorical strategies undercut um, American doctrine. And again, that might sound bizarre on the face of it, simply by looking, well, if it's undercutting doctrine, then why are 600,000 people dead in Germany and 300,000 people uh, dead in Japan? Um, that certainly is the case. But at the same time, the United States military, the United States Army Air Force certainly feels the power of constraints, uh, these normative constraints that they've laid out, and they actually shift their doctrine in order to try to meet what they're actually saying. And what do I mean by this? In terms of actually feeling constraints, regardless of whether or not they were using this instrumentally, they really did believe that public opinion would hold them to a standard. So one quotation that comes from Pat Arnold, um, he writes to his commanders in 1942, within the borders of con the continental United States, there are two, more, uh, two most important fronts exist, namely aircraft production and public opinion. And by that he means he believes that the war in the, you know, for the success of the United States Army Air Force lies both in being able to produce the planes that they need and being able to ensure that public opinion is on their side. 
And Arnold is absolutely convinced that if they start adopting things like area bombing and intentionally hitting civilians, then public opinion is going to turn on them. Okay. Um, it's, it's hard for me in some ways to convey what the documents look like without having them here. But even as somebody who generally believes that, 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 that mil you know, military actors pay attention to Norman constraints, I was shocked at how much Arnold talks about this in the midst of World War II. He's consistently asking his, um, his pilots to come home with evidence that they're practicing precision, that they're, they're engaged in, in the observation of, of, of non-combatant immunity. He's, he's asking them to put cameras on their planes so everybody can see when they're targeting. It, it actually got to the point where I was reading some of these letters and thought, Hap, you've you got a war to fight, but maybe we can stop the public relations campaign for a little bit. So it's, it's, it, the, the constraints are very much felt. There are other also kind of odd ways in which it constrains American doctrine that I talk about in the paper. Arguably, it keeps the United States and Britain from cooperating during the Casablanca uh, Conference in 1942 and 1943, and in coordinating uh, an actual air campaign over Germany. Um, the United States and Britain end up uh, engaging in two separate air campaigns, and they justify it by saying it's 24 hours a day bombing. Um, but really, a lot of this comes down with an inability to be able to coordinate their strategies. You also get really strange allocating of resources um, in, in the United States Army Air Force. So for example, the, the kind of pursuit of the finding the perfect bomb site is something that sets up a lot of resources in the United States Army Air Force. Um, and arguably without a lot of results, I mean, the Northern bomb site is good, but you're still having a lot of difficult, you know, relatively, but trying to actually go through cloud cover in Europe, it's not doing much, right? So this, again, this is total war. And if you think you're going to have an efficient allocation of resources, maybe this isn't it. But I think this really shows this type of commitment to precision, even though some of this is actually instrumental. The second thing that I would talk about in the paper is some of the narrowing of the discourse on ethics that happens. And here, one thing I don't run is a comparison. Um, I think what we might be a really interesting comparison with the UK case on, on, on this point. Um, and I'm also, the other thing I'm doing, which is not here because I'm nowhere finished, um, is a content analysis of debates about uh, the, the ethics of, of strategic bombing and war fighting uh, between, and the differences between, say, what's going on in the 1920s and what's going on in, in the 1930s and 1940s. And what you see in the 1920s, at least kind of my, my initial look at it, is a really fluid debate in the United States. And a lot of this is whether or not strategic bombing is ethical, whether or not it's ethical to target civilians, um, whether or not it's effective. By the time you get to the 1930s and World War II, there's a really interesting sense of almost crickets surrounding the ethics of killing civilians. Because obviously civilians are being killed. And instead, what you see over and over from the media, from military elites, from civilian elites is, well, civilians are being targeted, but the United States Army Air Force is engaged in a campaign of precision that respects norms of non-combatant community. In other words, the intention is there, right? the practices are there, and we're using the technology. Right? And therefore, we're not really going to discuss the ethics of firebombing campaigns, and we're not really going to discuss the fact that these campaigns are still producing these mass amounts of civilian casualties because we've decided that we're conducting this ethically. Right? So there's a bit of a silence on that. And this is in real contrast with some of the debates I've, I've started looking at in the UK. Now, it's not to say the UK is acting normally. They, in many ways, they kind of decide that 
This is a total war, and civilian brutality is, is about civilian targeting is going to happen, right? But you get a much more vocal debate, at least at the beginning of the war, about the ethics of this type of civilian targeting. So I think it's a much different trajectory than happens in the UK. The final point that I want to make has to do with these paradoxes of precision and the way in which this actual adherence or attempted adherence to norms of non-discrimination, the practice of precision, actually produce mechanisms that might that, that, that end up undercutting other norms. One thing I talk about in the paper, and this actually, for those of you who might have read, um, it's, it's, it's an older book, but Lynn Eden's Whole World on Fire, right? It's a great book, I think. Um, uh, she talks about the way in which practices can actually produce um, counterproductive and arguably really problematic um, uh, views of what, 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 what uh, counts as legitimate war. Um, and in this case, one of the uh, things I pointed out is this focus, once you've decided that precision targeting was going to do, then you start to talk about, well, how is it that you, what is it that you actually need to do to hit a target, right? What it is you need to do to actually hit a target in order to destroy it. The calculations that come from this type of reasoning end up producing situations where you're talking about using 120 bombers, dropping 1,000 pounds, uh, pounds of bombs to get nine hits on targets to do the job that you want to do. Right? Whether or not you intend to hit civilians in those type of calculations, you're going to cause massive civilian destruction when you're using 1,000 bombs being dropped from 1,000 pounds of bombs being dropped from, from 120 bombers to get that type of precision targeting, right? So in other words, the very practices that this type of strategy produces might create civilian casualties. I would also argue that you stop paying attention to other potential uh, you know, ethical problems, such as when you decide you're going to do, do precision targeting and fly your own bombers really low to the ground and have them go to the target, you're going to lose a lot more of your own pilots. Right? And that's not to say that you should necessarily preserve the life of your own pilots over the life of civilians, but it's to say if you're going to kill civilians anyway, perhaps you should also keep in mind what you're doing to your own soldiers. So those are the types of unintentional um, effects, I argue, of, of embracing this norm. Let me just conclude um, with a couple of thoughts. Obviously, this is a really small swath of history, and I'd actually like to uh, ideally push this into a book-length project that covers a lot more. Um, but my final kind of uh, argument on this is I think that this isn't just an historical moment. I, I, I think in many ways this is the birthplace of an emphasis on precision that is unduly narrow discussion about what constitutes ethical and even effective practices in war. Um, so one of the things that I, I talk a bit about in, in the conclusion is the way, for example, um, we now talk about war fighting practices in what used to be known, what was formerly known as the Global War on Terror, and in particularly precision targeting of, of militants. Right? Um, I think arguably there's been a lot of discussion about um, the use of, of, of precision warfare and whether or not it's actually precise. So of course there are debates about well, you might have hit a militant, did you accidentally also hit his family, did you hit a building, did you target wrong? That's all well and good. I think those are important debates. But what shocked me about those debates is there are, it seems to me that there are other debates about these wars that we should be having. So for example, why is it that we're having simply a debate about the conduct of war and not the causes of war? So under what conditions, for example, is it just okay and effective to engage in preventive targeting of any sort? Right? 
So in other words, I think that because people have become so focused on the idea of, of precision targeting and non-discrimination as in many ways the ethical gold standard, these other debates about the causes of war, the just causes of war falls inside. I also get a little nervous when I read stories about current nuclear modernization um, and the development of more precise uh, in the marriage of precision technology with, uh, with, with low-yield nuclear weapons. This very well might be the wave of the future, but when I see discussions about the, about the fact that these weapons might be better at preserving civilian lives, I wonder, is that worth actually setting the stage of the potential breaking of a nuclear taboo? Or undercutting the stability, if you think it's stable, of mutual assured destruction, right? So I worry that the narrowing of debates in the equation of precision warfare with just warfare leaves out a lot of richness and nuance in debates over the justice of war. So with that in mind, I will go ahead and shut up and take your questions. So thank you very much for listening to me. Uh, uh, two fingers if you have something on point that you want to get to. All right, Professor Desch. Uh, thanks. Um, Stacey's uh, really interesting paper, uh, it's also a really rich paper. Uh, when you get to be an old man, rich food is hard to digest. <laughs> and uh, I thought that, you know, for a paper of, of this length, you were trying to do too many things. Um, and uh, some of them, I thought, you did really well. And the, the thing uh, that struck it, uh, uh, sort of stood out for me in terms of you know, being the most interesting and the most convincing was this argument about uh, normative narrowing and mm -hmm. how uh, a fixation on use in Bayo uh, type things you know, sort of completely takes the whole war and peace decision uh, off the agenda. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, a powerful argument and one uh, that certainly has a lot of relevance uh, well beyond the, uh, the cases. Um, I have to say, though, that I found the, uh, the, the causal argument both not very clear mm -hmm. um, and where I thought it was clear not as uh, compelling as it could be. Uh, so you're basically uh, saying that, if I understand your story, that um, uh, these uh, Air Force or Army Air Corps uh, uh, normative entrepreneurs uh, latched on to uh, uh, discrimination uh, as a way of advancing the institutional interest uh, of the uh, uh, of the institution, and that could be right, but I don't think you do um, a uh, a uh, convincing job of dealing with the alternative explanations. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of really important ones. One is they really believe in uh, the philosophy or the theology of just war theory. That this isn't uh, about them, you know, glomming on and using this thing. It's they believe it and. Uh, they're trying to reconcile it with, uh, with their job, which is a, uh, a different argument, uh, it, uh, it seems to me. Secondly, and this is the constraints on doctrine, which I thought was the most uh, unpersuasive part of your argument. Um, uh, I, I don't think you can make an argument that precision was bad in terms of the, uh, uh, the Air Forces or the Air Corps' mission during the war. What was the alternative 
uh, bombing at night like the uh, British to de-house the uh, uh, Jerry. I mean, that's crazy. That didn't work, and they only did it because they didn't have the technology and they didn't have the gumption to fly daylight on uh, missions. And the evidence that that's uh, not tied to organizational interest is there were a lot of other uh, people involved in the strategic debate, for example, the economic objectives units of the OSS, who also uh, basically advocated a version of precision bombing mm -hmm. as the most likely strategy yeah. to win the war. Now, ultimately, uh, strategic air power didn't win the war, um, but to the extent that it contributed positively uh, to the war, certainly in Western Europe, it was because we uh, pursued a strategy roughly driven uh, by precision attacks on uh, various aspects of the German economy. It wasn't perfect, but it was a lot better mm -hmm. than, uh, than what the British were doing. So I guess the, the bottom line is, I think you're, you've got too many moving parts in this piece. Some of the gears seem to be grinding. Um, the gear that seems to me to be really meshing is this normative, uh, uh, well, the normative uh, narrative uh, narrowing uh, piece, which uh, I think not only is evident, um, but also this is the one that's really got legs um, because uh, I'm somebody who thinks that drone strikes are incredibly precise. I think in terms mm -hmm. of the history of warfare, collateral damage uh, is as low today uh, as it's ever been, but it also completely takes off the table the larger questions about you know, whether we ought to be handling uh, the the, uh, the uh, problem uh, of terrorist groups this way as opposed uh, to other ways. Right. So that's 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 really useful. Um, I mean, I think you got you got my causal argument spot on, um, but I think you're right that the way in which I, especially the way in which I talk about it here, makes it sound as though everybody needs to have the shared, basically instrumental approach. And as I said, you know. Here, there are, there are some true believers in this. You know, I, I, I think Karl Spatz is a true believer um, to the point that you have um, Spatz pushing back when he's being ordered to, you know, when, when Thunderclap is coming down the road, one of the, one of the German bombing campaigns. It's like, no, I'm, we're not going to be doing that. Um, and you, he's, even there, you get some concern about public opinion blowback, but he just, he, he, again, he, he's a true believer, and I think I need to find some way to deal with that. Um, the question about, I mean, what was the alternative? Um, I'll bring up one of these, and I do this carefully because I'm not even sure how it meshes with my argument. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, you said, you know, what was the alternative? Could bombing by night? Well, Japan, right? Um, and I, I, I think somehow, you know, LeMay, obviously, and the shift to working working with the low-level bombing in the incendiaries suggests that, that there are people there that are thinking about this, even though he, even he tries to, to justify it in terms of, saying that they're protecting civilian life. Um, I also think I could do more <coughs> pardon me, to talk about how things like close air support fall off the table during this. But, I, I, but if, if the focus here should be on normative narrowing, and there has been part of me that's thought that as well, that, that actually, I think, takes me in a different direction, both tracing the debates in the United States over time, but also comparing it to other debates as, as well. So I, I, I think that's pretty important. The one final thing, and, and not, not, not to keep talking that I say, is that I, I think that 
I really like what you said, Mike, at the end, because part of my frustration about the debates about precision and norms of discrimination is that I always I feel like a lot of them have come at this condemning the United States military, the United States Air Force in particular, say <coughs> for for well, you're not precise enough. <coughs> My kind of feeling is it's extraordinarily precise, and nothing is 100% precise. I mean, that's just the nature of war. And it seems to me then it, it, that the real concern there is what is the what is the cost, what is the loss, both on our side, our side, and the other that we are willing to bear in pursuit of a goal. And that's where I find frustrating that we're not having that debate. Norman. Okay, next up. Ben. Uh, thank you, Stacey, for the great paper. Um, I guess I had a few points kind of building off one thing you said about, you, you mentioned that you don't really get into them, uh, into the paper on close air support yeah. uh, that much. And um, to me, it seemed like um, that kind of was the missing link between a lot of the different parts in the paper. Um, and I'll try to spell that out why. Sure. Um, so it seems like there's kind of two variables that are acting on these debates. There's an effectiveness variable and a legitimacy variable. Okay. You need to have, um, in order for a military doctrine to succeed, it needs to be um, a, across a threshold of effectiveness or it be adopted. And they have, to, they have to sell it as effective and they have to sell it as legitimate. Mm -hmm. So they were having trouble selling the effective strategy, effective duhay strategy because it wasn't legitimate according mm -hmm. to the Navy counter argument. So then they have to push it into, oh, it's a legitimate and effective. Um, but at no point in the story, you mentioned in one paragraph, but there's no, there's already an acceptance that we're doing strategic bombing. There's kind of this residual, we're doing it, and we have need to find a way to make it uh, legitimate. And there's never really a consideration of now that we have precision technology, what are the other things we could use it for, um, like close air support? And I think if you could find a way to actually, there's, that's kind of, the, this kind of the link that's going on. There's this yeah. belief in the efficacy, but it's not legitimate. So we need to find the legitimate way to sell it. Um, and then it turns out actually it's legitimate but not effective, but it still is allowed to act. And that's kind of an interesting puzzle then too, is why do we allow the legitimate things that are not effective to keep um, operating? Yeah, think, um, yeah. And some kind of interesting examples you can bring into that, once you actually get into um, you know, post-42, when you get the um, landings, especially in the Mediterranean campaign, um, you have uh, decisions being made by the Air Force saying we are not gonna support your landing, instead we're gonna go bomb around, bomb around. Um, and to the point where they have to change the amphibious landing zones to more suboptimal mm -hmm. locations. Uh, and so you have these tangible effects that are actually going to prolong the war, make things, uh, end up causing more uh, civilian deaths because if you're bombing a city that's beyond the front line by definition. So there's kind of these like odd things that are going on based on the decision to scrap close air support and go for strategic bombing in the first place. So I think um, a lot of things could be tied together in this paper, like what's going on with that decision, why does precision, why is that debate not happening about precision in close air support when you could actually have probably more tangible effects? Right, and and, and, and one thing, it, it strikes me, in this, you know, thinking, thinking about Mike's comments, whether or not that, if I were to go that route, whether or not that should be a different paper, same paper, you know, to hell with it, just write a book, stop trying to write papers. Um, but but because I think this is really important, I, I think you're right that part of what happens is that it's the shutdown of, of close air support um, which, I mean, part of the reason, I talked a lot about the Navy in here as an actor, but you're actually right. Part of what the United States Air Force is trying to do is get out from under the United States Army, right? And even as they're getting administrative independence, right, their mission is to support the United States Army. And this is part of what ACTS is trying to do when they're developing the precision doctrine, right? They're, they're arguing that, well, 
Yeah, you want us to support, I mean, that could be close air support. It could also be that we're hitting these nodes of military industrial targets. That, that, that's support, too. So they're trying to redefine what, what close air, what, what support is, right? Um, so I, I like that linkage there. Um, yeah, and the legitimate theory creating, creating, um, you know, creating inefficient strategies, right? I mean, this is ultimately, I mean, there are other actors um, that, that, that come in, like Quesada, at, at the end of the war, who are once again trying to reintegrate the United States Army Air Force with, um, with, with the Army, especially as they're approaching the opening of the Western Front in France, right? Um, but yeah, I, th I think you could point out a number of those operations. And just one really quick yeah. thing to look at also, um, you can maybe look into kind of how the airborne divisions are operating at this time, because they had this kind of same myth of they can do more than they actually can, and so they're very confident that we can drop folks, you know, in a very precise location, and they end up, end up you know, shooting each other's planes down and dispersing wildly, not ever really succeeding, you know, in 43. Um, so maybe that's something kind of a different way of looking at where this, this belief in precision and its effect on strategy, uh -huh. um, where, where it came from. Thank you. Did uh, you have two fingers on that? Yeah, I, I just want to caution you. We Ben talked about this, about they, they developed the technology to be precise, but then it still wasn't effective. I think is wrong, and they knew it uh, at the time, right? So they knew the Norden bomb site was not precise, and it wasn't just because of clouds. Like even on a cloudless day, right. you know, the CP is right. like, hundreds of yards. It, it, they just couldn't do precise, and they they tried uh -huh. BAI missions, and they tried close air support. So close air support was actually occasionally effective yes. in you the Normandy campaign yeah. with a very large. Um, set of bombers, um, most close air support was done by fighters that had a much better chance of hitting mm -hmm. something, and they still couldn't hit anything, mm -hmm. right? So, so close air support was largely not effective. Right. It scared the hell out of the other side. They didn't kill very much mm -hmm. with close air support. And there are a couple of good journal military history articles published in the 90s about this and some other things. It just um, uh, uh, Precision was a myth. It's a cult. It's a cult. That's weird. But it, but it's not. But and, and I guess many cults turn out not to be true. They think the world's going to end on Tuesday, and it doesn't. <laughs> so, so maybe precision is a cult in that sense too. But precision actually became a thing, as you mentioned briefly, like fifty years later, right? So, um, I guess I, I trying to do a long two fingers. Sorry, but but the idea of. of Thinking about as they got more precise, why didn't they then use the precision for military targets as opposed to their continuing their commitment to strategic bombing is a is a clever thought, except that they knew they weren't precise. So it didn't, you know, so that wouldn't enter the prospect of an there wasn't a yeah. more effective way to apply. Oh, it's it's interesting. It's funny because I, I I must have missed it because I actually didn't hear Ben's argument as being about now that you're more precise, you can go out and do close air support. I, I was just hearing more than once. They developed the myth of precision and the link to, in particular, to strategic bombing. They weren't going to be hearing arguments about, well, why don't you just go do close air support? Because really, that's that's the best you can do. You're still not doing it well, but it's the best you can do. Well, oh. maybe that was what Ben was saying. But, no, but that. But the but the 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 point is that why did they apply this? innovation with respect to strategic targets instead of, of tactical military yeah. targets, right? Yeah. And uh, tactical military targets, at least with strategic targets, you were killing something. 
Okay, next up. Hey. Oh, perfect, because I was thinking about doing a two-finger. I'm glad I'm next on the list. All right, um, so my question or comment is about a potential say-do gap. Okay. Um, in the sense that uh, the idea behind precision bombing is to hit the, the economic or industrial targets um, in World War II, uh, and, uh, and they can't do it effectively, right? Mm -hmm. But they're still using this as a, a legitimation of what ends up becoming their, their argument for becoming their own force, mm -hmm. right? Their own, uh, their own branch. And, uh, and you talk about... You, so, okay, let me back up. So the way that I read Tammy Biddle is mm -hmm. that the British figure out that this isn't working because yes. they can't hit things that are precise, so they say, well, to hell with it. Light it on fire. We're going to light <laughs> everything on fire, right? So yeah. we're just going to go after the civilians because we, we know we can hit them, and eventually the pain will hopefully overwhelm them. Um, and because the British have been there longer and they've been practicing it longer, yeah. when the Americans come in, the, they have this idea, right, that they're going to be able to hit the economic industrial targets, and the British say, well, good luck. <laughs> we don't think that's going to work. Um, and the Americans, despite the fact that the British have been like, look, we've tested this, it just, we can't manage to get it together, the Americans persist, and they try, and they try, and they try, and they won't give up. Um, but given their experience in war, and I know this goes beyond the time, time frame of your case, mm -hmm. um, but if you start looking at the argument between counter-value and counter-force, um, counter yeah, sorry, um, in the, the post-World War II era, especially when they start talking about nuclear weapons, that, that argument flares up a lot. And when you look at the way that they were picking potential targets in the nuclear strategy, right, they start placing the target point between the, the industrial target and the city population, right, for the bonus hit. Because they know that if they can get it close enough to the industrial target, they'll blow it up. But there's maybe this idea that if they hit the civilians, that could be productive too, because that's what was that's what was working in, in some fashion in World War II. Mm -hmm. And so I think if I was gonna ask is ask this as a question, my question is at what point have they committed so far to this? It's the more precise, it's more ethical, it's more effective, mm -hmm. it's more strategic, right? Um, that despite the fact that in practice it's hard to carry out, we can't really do it that well, and I'm probably not actually going to practice it that way. Um, at what point does that, like, are they so committed rhetorically that they can't back down? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then so, so the say-do gap, and then also the idea that um, if that is the way that they have legitimated themselves as an independent branch mm -hmm. of the military... Um, and I think that ties into what Ben was saying, which is if, if their job is close air support, there's no reason for them to be an independent branch yeah. of the military. They should be under the army because that is what they're supposed to do is support the mm -hmm. soldiers on the ground, right? So, so there's an incentive for them to keep saying precision is important because that's how they've legitimated themselves. That's how they became their own service, but they're not actually practicing it. So how does that all sort of play in and, and sort of... I've now sort of wandered away from a main question or point, but anyway, that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of bridge, that is a very rich question, um, and I'll try to do the best I can with it. Um, so I think that one of the things I would like to do if this becomes a, a something that's more of a book length project um, is talk about, um, and this kind of borrows from, from Krebs's term, like settled and unsettled times, mm -hmm. and what settles it and what doesn't. Um, I think that 
I, I feel pretty confident talking about this as a moment where this becomes locked in in all sorts of ways for conventional strategic bombing. I think one of the various unsettling moments is the, uh, the discussions about nuclear technology and strategy. Um, and right now, I, I, I won't give you a good substantive answer, but I will tell you that I've had, um, um, I've, I've been working with a research assistant on documenting the various fights between, I mean, between the Navy, um, mm -hmm. Air, Strategic Air Command, Air Force over the Polaris pro project, mm -hmm. and they're over a discussion about what's ethical and, 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 and what's not. And I, I, I feel like you're barreling fire into my, after my head, but I'll, I'll, I'll let him ask me a question about that. Um, so that's, I do think that there are, there are different times in which this flares mm -hmm. up again. And it's interesting that it's, again, I'm not saying that it's all about legitimacy and it's all about mm -hmm. effectiveness, but the way in which these kind of become unsettled and these debates come up again, and people once again try to outflank each other on these terms. Um, I mean, I think the second one is, I mean, I, I'd ask you to elaborate on, because I, I think my feeling is, well, I, I agree, right? Like, I mean, they, they can't make the argument for close air support because that's basically making an argument for, yeah, you're right, we belong to you. Mm -hmm. So we'll just keep some serving you, and that, that's not going to, well, at least there's, there's already a critical mass within the United States Army Air Force that's saying that's not going to happen. All right, next up is Dan. Um, thank you very much, Stacey. Um, I think as your project develops, I think you'll get a lot of more fruit, you alluded to it, but I think you'll get a lot more fruit of comparing the British and American experiences. Um, and some questions uh, come to mind. I'd love to hear you speculate about them. Um, so first of all, when the British switched to night bombing, mm -hmm. what kind of norm debates accompanied that? And you know, my suspicion is, my reading of it is, what Mike said, they basically didn't have the gumption, nor the right equipment to do what we did, which was stick to daytime bombing. And when they switched, second question, tonight, what kinds of debates did that prompt in the US? Did we look at them and say to ourselves, well, they're gonna be much less effective. There goes 40% of the bombers available for the ball bearing factory and they're gonna just torch cities. Mm -hmm. And so did we evaluate it that way or did we say, oh, those Brits, they're gonna be killing much more civilians than us, the dirty pigs. You know, so what kinds of ways were they framing uh, that divergence uh, in strategy? Um, and you know, I also have a feeling the US justified most of what it did in terms of its theory of victory, which was the industrial you know, kind of choke points um, mm -hmm. in the ball bearing factory oil, you know, the kinds of things that they thought would maximally affect um, the German war effort. And so I could see them having that debate about the Brits and thinking, you know, really this is a hurt, hurting the war effort that they're going mm -hmm. to tonight time um, bombing. Um, so, you know, and again, the role of technology in enabling one strategy over another is worth uh, thinking about. I think overall there's some tension in your presentation um, between what you actually believe about the power of norms. Um, because at some points you say the norms were deployed strategically, which is a nice use of words, um, but deployed strategically to cloak an organizational objective. Mm -hmm. But other times you're celebrating Hap Arnold for being a true believer in norms and putting cameras on the planes and whatnot. Um, so I'm not really sure uh, what to believe. Both are probably true at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I kind of want to get more of a sense of how you weigh the relative importance of strategic deployment of norms versus uh, true believers. Um, and I kind of want to know if I should be mad, angry, or cynical, or happy about the US players here. Because you know, 
as Eugene was pointing out, we knew that we weren't being effective. And if people are claiming all this normative stuff while knowing that they're ineffective, to me that makes the porridge seem pretty rotten. So I just want to know kind of how you feel about that issue. I mean, again, these are great questions. Um, and I'm going to take them in reverse order, in part so I can tie them back to um, Kate. Kate. Kate, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, to, 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 to what Kate said, because you asked me the question, and I was in some ways so concentrated on, on the substance of the nuclear debate, which I think, but I think there's a theoretical overlap mm -hmm. with what Dan has asked, which is that to what extent are, is this a strategic deployment, and to what extent does this have autonomous power? Um, and in some ways, the answer I'm trying to give is yes. Um, and I realize that's not very satisfying. Um, and I think part of that, and this, this is on me, this actually suggests something that I need to be better about, both empirically and theoretically. Because in many ways, what I'm trying to tell is a path-dependence story of the moments in which actors have the opportunity to come and define and redefine what constitutes legitimate practices in war and moments in which that actually gets settled, right? And I think there are ways to do it, to talk about how this gets settled in public debate, how it actually gets settled in doctrine, how, it gets, how this becomes instantiated in real institutional behaviors, right? But I don't think I've done that job here. Um, so I think that's part of the confusion is, if you're gonna tell the story that it's strategic and causally powerful, then the evidence for both needs to be there. And I, and I think that's a really good point. Um, your second question, and some of these I can, I can only take guesses at because I have not spent um, my required time in the British, you know, in, in the archives, and it's so sad I'm gonna have to head back to London. I'm really struggling. <laughs> um, you know, you asked about the question of, of, of what it is the British are talking about as they switch to night bombing. My sense, and mind you, my sense is much more about the secondary historical literature um, has to do with a lot of this begins to revolve around ideas of proportionality, right? And the fact that the, Ger the Germans did it first and they're already targeting. So that that's what gives British, whatever the British are doing, makes it legitimate. And it might well be that the motives are something different, that it has to do with technology or has gumption, as you put it, whatever. Um, but, that, 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 but that ultimately, that, that the debate has to do with proportionality. Um, one thing I want to say, and I, I can't hold myself, yeah, I'm going I'm to share the story I mentioned during lunch, um, is not to give the sense that the British totally lost um, sight of norms. One of, as I was telling my colleagues over lunch, one of my the favorite documents I've ever found um, in the public record office in Kew was this discussion about British, the British were having, a, 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 about strategic bombing campaigns in Germany. And what they were very, very concerned about was the butane that was being used in the incendiary bombs that they were dropping on Germany. Because that butane might actually violate norms against chemical warfare. Because it's one thing people to set, you know, to set people on fire, but if you're gonna set them on fire with the wrong chemical, you might be having a problem. So like, but it's, but it's there and it's real. Um, it, it, these are like, before devoting pages to discussion, right? So, so there are constraints, but it's playing out in really different ways. Your question about the American response to, to area bombing, there is a reaction. There's both a reaction in the American media and there's a reaction in the United States Army Air Force. And I think it goes beyond, I, I agree that they also think yours doesn't work, right? There is a theory of effective war fighting here as well. But there's also a lot of evidence. So I've uh, done analyses of editorials in the New York Times and reporting there in the Los Angeles Times. There, uh, there, there's constant reporting of, well, the British are doing, it, are doing area bombing or sometimes terror bombing. So they'll go as far as say terror bombing, but we're not doing that. We're doing something very different. Um, Spots, when he's at Casablanca, 
storms away saying the British are trying to tar us with the brush of morale bombing. Right? There, there's a real belief that non-leaders is ineffective, that there's, there's something really, the, 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 the tinge of immorality in what the British are doing. It's not acceptable to the Americans. Okay, next up is Rose. Um, so I have a couple of questions. Um, <coughs> the first one is, how do you define precision? And mm -hmm. maybe more to the point, how do they define precision? Yeah. And how did precision get collapsed? So like in the paper, it just seems like it's collapsed right away into discrimination. And I'm wondering, you know, it seems like some of that relationship is their success in making that tie. Yeah. And sort of what is precision if it just stands alone, if it's not discrimination? Are these separate concepts? And how did they get sort of so joined? Um, uh, the other sort of question or point that um, I thought was the most interesting was, was also this idea of, you know, what, what would ethical warfare look like if the Air Force wasn't fighting for its life, right? Like, like what, how did, you know, precision, discrimination, whatever, um, sort of become the one ring to rule them all, right? Like, that's sort of what the thing is, but like, what are the other rings that could have been right, and, and how how did that deviate from what you know the course of history from what we might expect to see um, if the Air Force didn't make this intervention? Like, was there some other thing that was sort of forming as the ethical, or was would there not have been a gold standard, or what are some of the other um, potential norms could have been sort of the coalescing uh, focus of of these discussions? Mm -hmm. um, and then also, uh, just at the end, I kind of think that um, I had a hard time following your what's your argument versus what's your argument against potential counter arguments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think your argument is, you know, cult of precision causes norms, right? Like military is, you know, it's not, you said the constructivist is like norms lead them to adopt precision. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. like precision and adopt them to create, you know, gets them to create the norms, right? The mm -hmm. causal errors reverse. It seems like the other counter argument is the like duh argument, right? And that's sort of where you start. Like this is not a nat it wasn't natural or, or just one hundred percent was gonna be the case technologically or whatever, but this was the norm that was gonna win as being you know the thing that's tied with ethics. Um, mm -hmm. and but in many places you're saying like that's your argument, but I think that's actually you arguing against a null hypothesis, right, which is that there is just something inevitable about the fact that this was going to be the thing. And so in terms of framing yeah. your argument and sort of distinguishing what you're arguing from what you're responding to, I think that would be helpful. Okay, no, I think this is really, um, and I'm actually going to take them, uh, not completely backwards, but start with your second and third point, because I think they're actually, the answer that is related, mm -hmm. and then go back to the question about the definition. These are, these are really good, thank you, Rose. Um, I, I uh, on the question of the, the, the contingency of it, right? I think that, you know, it could be a, a, a duh argument, but I do think that there's a bit of telos in a lot of our discussions about the growth of norms and laws and all of this that I kind of want to get at. And I think if I'm going to demonstrate that, or let me put this way, I might say it, but how do you make it interesting, right? Because, you know, isn't everything on the planet contingent and arbitrary? So why not make it interesting? And I think that actually ties into your second point, and it's something that isn't fleshed out in the paper, which is what is what is the spectrum of debate that's going on in the 1920s, right? 
not just about what the Air Force can do, but uh, other actors and what they're saying would be quote-unquote legitimate war. Because everybody's at this moment, and if you've read Biddle, you know it's like they're trying to imagine what the air power, they're trying to imagine war. Um, and so you get a lot of different things. You get, obviously, we talked about uh, Mitchell's Duhay model, that you might just say, no, that's never going to work, right? Well, I don't know. The balance of terror has taken on, in some cases, as, as at least a normative argument that this is the best you can do. Um, there are other things such as, well, you can do what you do with your air power, but we're all going to agree to avoid cities, right? Um, and you might say, well, that, that's just not going to happen. Right, um, you're, you're going to want to, but again, the, the, I mean, first of all, there are historical analogies to avoiding cities and warfare. So I'm not sure if it's on its face going to be eliminated. Right. So I think maybe trying to theoretically and empirically capture the range of the debate that's going on, and then to, to my point, show the narrowing of that of the debate after the Air Force intervention might be a way to take the project, and that makes that contingency art, argument really kind of the framing I, I, I think of it. So I have to think about it. Um, on the second question, I'm, I'm going to totally ask you to indulge me, and I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Um, what's interesting about your question is this is actually where the newer, the new iteration of the project started, um, and then it kind of went off, which is the definition of precision. And what I was really interested in writing about was the fact that the divergence between how the military, particularly the United States Air Force, defines precision versus how we think about precision warfare, right? We meaning like... We meaning like lay people, all of the, yeah, all of the general, or the way, like, if I, if I were to pull up something in, 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 a, in a paper, in, in, in the New York Times, and they were talking about precision, I would argue that, that there's an equation between precision on the one hand and discrimination on the other, right? That those, that's what precision is. It is to discriminate... Between, um, between combatants and non-combatants. But the definition of precision um, is, you know, is technically about the accuracy of the weapon, right? And, and, and in particular, it's about a precision weapon is one that has a CEP, which changes depending on the state of the technology, right? Now I think it's precision, you're down to eight meters or three meters or, or something like that, right? And the thing is, there are certain ways in which those go together, right? certain ways in which they don't, right? Um, so obviously CEP is, is, is probabilistic, right? It's it, 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 50% chance, right? Um, if you, you can drop an extremely precise weapon with a whole lot of yield, right? And that's not just going to discriminate against anything, right? Or if your target is between two nodes and has a certain yield, well, that's great, you hit precision, but you haven't hit discrimination, right? So part of what I was going to talk about is why is it that this, this, is, this is really what's being pursued, right? And the public understanding is this, right? And I kind of end up meandering more into this area. Um, the joys of being in a project. One meanders. Or frustrations. Sure. Uh, let me jump in with, uh, I've got a list of things we can talk about later, but uh, just one thing I'd love to have you talk about if people are rather nod or shake. Um, <laughs> To me, like the, the one thing I want to see more of here was winner pickers. So this okay. is a lot of talk about strategic interaction, but we got the sense that the Air Force was the only real thing with agency with the secondary role of the Navy. Yeah. Um, so in order to see who wins and why, I mean, the, like the macro puzzle of this is fascinating because there's this thing called precision, which people believe at high cost for decades in blood and treasure, and it's a lie. 
It's a big fat lie. And people keep paying it. So where are the winner pickers here? Where's the president? Where are the citizens? Where's the mm -hmm. press? Like, where are these people? So you're like, what are you joking? Your CEP is a mile. <laughs> Who are you kidding? Why are we paying your salary? Yeah. You know, like, Curtis LeMay, how do you have a job again? Uh, why are we promoting you? And mm -hmm. they do, right? And oh, yeah. I, I even think you're optimistic here. I'm thinking that the Gulf War had a really good CEP. Like, I think it's not until late. Oh, I think the Gulf War is a mess. Yeah, and yeah. It's mostly dumb bomb. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, yeah. and people, I mean, I, I was alive then. Um, people people thought this was so cool with the footage and then we were doing things, the men's room or women's room, that's so great. And then you find like 17% of them actually hit their targets. Um, wow. Why did that happen? So I think there's a really cool public service function of this project, of this macro myth that people drank the Kool-Aid and just smiled and nodded and wrote the checks and bled their blood. Um, but what I want to know is the winner picker part of the show. Question. That's a real, I mean, and you know, it, it, it's funny because I, I, I feel like I could start spinning stories of, of winner pickers, but that's, that's not what you're asking me to do. Right. No, go ahead. Like, I can. I'll what you're asking? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm the gullible person that thought the Gulf War worked. <laughs> um, I think this is. I mean, I think, and I, I think that this needs to show more evidence of the causality. I think there are people who really want to hear this um, within the administration. When this is like Newton Baker, Secretary of War, is out there saying we need to be able to have legitimate warfare. So when he, I think when he's hearing it, that's one of the like yes. Yes, this sounds wonderful. There's also a sense, too, that, remember, they're not, I mean, they're promising legitimate war. They're promising war from afar. They're pro like, there are all sorts of things that are wrapped up in this promise, right? Um, I think it's, the legitimacy thing is extremely important, but there's a whole package within this myth. One thing, and again, a, a story that I, I'd like to tell, um, and I don't know how much it can be theorized, is, is the role of the media. Um, and uh, th these are the moments that you end up uh, looking through a New York Times reporter's personal papers at, at, at Yale University. Like the, I don't know if anybody's read historical stuff by Hanson Baldwin, who is, yeah, might of course have. Um, but he is somebody, he is writing these, he's a, I mean, he's a serious and significant reporter from the New York Times. He's writing what in retrospect look like glamour pieces for precision technology. I mean, they're just they're just extolling the vision. Now, what's interesting, this ties back into your discussion, where he freaks out is when he thinks that this rhetoric is being tied to nuclear weapons. So he's writing all of these things, and obviously, I mean, I, I, I think it has an effect. I need to do more public opinion stuff and things like that, but he, the media is amplifying the story, right? But when he thinks that this is actually gonna be applied to, 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 to nuclear weapons, he starts writing these he was writing the hit pieces on strategic air command and the United States military. Like, you can't do it. This doesn't make sense anymore. We're done. Um, so. Uh, Dan has two fingers. Um, just to my point of view, the Gulf War helps demonstrate the extent to which the Air Force or the military in general uses norms as a kind of cover story because you know there was such a small amount of precision munitions used and what was really effective was our destroying of the electrical grid, yeah. which caused tens of thousands or more, hundreds of thousands of casualties. Yeah. And that was under the radar, so to speak, for a lot of people. I mean, I, you know, and, and this is where my part of this might be just, you know, a theoretical stretch that I, I need to do. I've never been a media person. Um, I've not considered that to be a, a strength of mine, but I do think there's something about the amplification, even, even this early, right? I mean, the stories, that you, I mean, every, you know, 
-hmm. New York Times, there's, you know, I, I cite some of this, right? You know, the, the United States Air Force destroy, uh, destroys Tokyo on the prairie, but they miss all the residential. I, I mean, come on. I mean, there, there wasn't a chance in hell that was going to happen, right? But th this is the narrative that is out there. Um, now, one thing I do want to say is, like, you know, I, I, I am as up on the, the stuff by Valentino and, and Sagan as everybody else would suggest that we're not sure if public opinion would have actually cared. Right? So there, there's a question of whether or not, is, is it the public that's making these decisions? Perceptions of the public opinion among the elites? I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought it'd be at the end. I thought maybe this is the end. Um, so, um... It's existential. <laughs> no, I hope not that um, Yes, maybe it so, is. So, um, uh... I, I just wanted to suggest, I think yeah. it's a, an, an interesting project, an interesting paper. Um, you are particularly interested in the implications of rhetoric or the force of rhetoric, and I guess I wanted to see more of that kind of carried through. The, right. the analysis that said rhetoric is what's carrying the, the analytical weight. But I felt like you were um, considering the wrong alternative frameworks. So okay. you come from a certain background that's different from mine, and so you come from this norm side and you want to complain about the norm people right. don't give enough credit to agency, and you know that seems like a good debate to be in, but right. I think you're missing things because the, the, a bunch of your story is kind of conventional wisdom in the organizational politics. Right. So you said you started in Warner Schilling's class, but you seem to have forgotten that um, <laughs> uh, in your presentation and a little bit in the paper right. that, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff. So I thought of Perry McCoy Smith, retired Air Force general, writes the book, The Air Force Plans for Peace, which is a quite good book about the, how the organizational politics motivated the Air Force's decisions in this very period. You're not citing this book. You're not thinking about that as kind of just a... Um, it's a, a very standard interpretation to think military organizations are strategic actors, not passive recipients of norms in that literature. And for organizational politics, don't go look at, at um, you know, the essence of decision or this kind of mumbo-jumbo bureaucratic politics view of foreign policy, but look at what makes military organizations tick. So you mentioned you're interested in the Polaris. Of course, my mentor wrote the book about the Polaris. And, and, um, and if you look at Harvey's work um, in the Polaris book and other things, you'll get a, a much richer story of bureaucratic politics as the alternative that you need to argue against rather than the normative framework yes. as the alternative you need to argue against. I just thought that was missing. And then specifically on the Air Force and precision story, the other hypothesis, which I'm inclined to think is right, that's separate from the the Air Force strategically used precision to drive its ind organizational independence is that they strategically used strategic bombing, right? So it wasn't, so strategic bombing, choosing the target differently. We don't have to cross the killing fields on the battlefield. You can't fight a military against a military. You have to attack civilian or, or economic targets to win. That was, I think a lot of people think of as the Air Force's kind of recipe that led to independence. And, the, the, the key driving thing was not 
um, precision to lead to Air Force independence, but a different target set to lead to independence. And sure, precision is part of that. You have to claim that you're not you know, morally bankrupt by killing too many civilians as part of the shift to strategic bombing. But, but the main thrust of their argument, as presented in, I think, the conventional wisdom of the organizational independence literature, is that their big move, their strategic move, was to be strategic in their bombing, um, right. and that the precision really came as the emphasis um, I don't know, at least 30 years later, if not even more than that, right? So the Vietnam era, the whatever, you know, that where, where technical capabilities had changed and the rhetoric of the Air Force and the rise of fighter command and a whole set of things really led to more emphasis on precision in the Air Force's organizational politics in a different era. Right. So I think, I think I agree with you on the first point, but I want, I want to push back a little on the second point. And, and Reacted. I think part of it, I, I think there needs to be more organizational theory here. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the reasons I don't cast myself as opposed to organizational theory is I'm not sure if I see myself as opposed to organizational theory. That is to say, um, not so much an alternative explanation, but a way to think about organization, the way to rethink organizational theory in a way that focuses us on the myriad ways in which organizations compete, right? So um, it, it, it's to say that you can talk about the effectiveness of strategy, and you can talk about the cost of strategy, but you can also talk about more the moral plane as well, right? So here's just uh, here is another vector. Um, I think that if I'm going to do that effectively, what I might try to do, and I don't I don't know how far I can push this theoretically, is to at least think about why it is or when it is that 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 you're more likely to see things play out on that plane you than other planes. You have to show that rhetoric is an alternative, gets you some analytical leverage in a kind of traditional organization theory that organizations choose what they're going to do and the policies they're going to adopt based on their organizational interests. What work is rhetoric now doing? Right. No, and, and, and I agree with that, but I think this actually gets, you know, the, the, the second point that you made here is something that I'm a little bit curious about because you mentioned organizational theory and their take on the role of the mission of strategic bombing versus precision and when they link up, which you suggested about 30 years after. I made that up. It's later. Okay. No, but I mean, I agree with the point that the mission that they're hoping to get out of strategic bombing, right? But my reading of maybe not the organizational theorists, but people, you know, the, the people like Michael Sherry and all the, 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 the historians who wrote on this piece is that it's the strategic bombing then the realization that they're not going to push through the Duhay vision of strategic bombing, then the turn towards precision. And so my, I'm fairly comfortable with marking that turn, Again, not in reality, and maybe that's where we're just saying, it's, not, it's a myth, or it's a, it's a lie. But the focal point, like, this is where it comes into play, right? This is where things come oriented towards that goal. So I, that dating, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with. So I'll just say, um, if you read, say, Smith's book, um, uh, the, or, or, I don't know, in a more IR theory kind of book, if you read Bob Pape's book about the end of, of World War II, he's arguing against, it's not Bob's argument, the, the, the Air Force exploits the nuclear bombing 
as a reason why they should be independent. Like part of this is we're going to hit strategic targets, and they're using ultimately nuclear weapons, incendiary right. bombing, all of these things, which are clearly not precise mm -hmm. as part of the justification for organizational independence. The point is to hit strategic targets, not military targets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in the 1940s period, mm -hmm. like their, their reasoning is based on, I think, you know, if you were going to say our reasoning is we should be an independent service that loves precision, you wouldn't also say we're an independent service that loves nuclear weapons. And, but they did say we're an independent service that loves nuclear weapons because what we like is strategic targets. Okay. Okay. Like, and I think that comes back to your point, Kate, about that, that unsettling moment of what, mm -hmm. the nucle what nuclear technology needs for the greatest one. Okay, I'm afraid we have run out of time. If we could please give one more round of applause. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.